you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, or turn your iPhone on to 1 Peter chapter 1, or your iPad, or whatever thing that you've got your Bible on, so you can follow along as we uh, work through this text together. And we are looking, as was read specifically at verses 3 through 9 of chapter 1 this morning. If you've ever been over to Central Oregon or to the Bend area, you'll know that there are a number of volcanic attractions that you can go see. There are lava cast forests that you can go see. There's a obsidian flow forest that you can go see and, and, and walk around on. And one of the things that you can go to is a place called the Lava Caves. And if you've ever gone down into the Lava Caves, you will also know that you need a very bright light. You need either a flashlight or a lantern that you can rent for probably a ridiculous sum of money. You need some sort of illuminary device because once you start down into the lava caves and not very far after you get just past the entrance of it, it becomes very, very dark, very, very quickly. So much so that if you were to turn off your flashlight or extinguish your lantern or, or whatever chosen instrument of illumination you have with you and you were to hold your hand in front of your face you would not be able to see your hand it is utterly pitch black no light and if you were down there and something were to happen where your light malfunctioned batteries ran out whatever you would be plunged instantly into pitch black conditions and for you to be able to find your way out of said lava cave without any sort of light or anything would be nearly hopeless because you wouldn't be able to see where you're going you could grope around maybe at the wall and try to find you know and follow the wall but there's no assurance that you'd be even going the right direction it would be utterly hopeless for you to try to find your way out in pitch black Hopelessness can feel like that. It can feel like no matter what you do, no matter which direction you turn, there's no hope of getting out. No hope of making it through whatever it is you're experiencing. And you feel hopeless. It is as if the light has been shut off in that pitch black cave and you are powerless powerless to get out powerless to see your way through it can be hopeless you can feel hopelessness and what is it that causes that what is it that causes us to feel as if we are hopeless primarily three things you could there's a there's a number of things but you can sort of pigeonhole everything under these three broad categories the first of which is alienation. That there is some sort of severing from peer group, friend group, family group. You feel as though you are, in a sense, no longer worthy of love or care or support or anything like that. That you are all alone. You are alienated from others. The second thing is powerlessness. That is, you, you feel as though you have lost the capacity, the ability to 
dictate the path of your life. It is as if you are in the hands of someone else. You are the, the decisions of life and the course of life is being decided by someone else, usually to your detriment. And you feel as though you are powerless to do anything. You are powerless to guide your own life. And the last thing is doom. That feeling as if life is over and death is imminent. Those three things, broadly speaking, can cause in us the feeling of hopelessness. Alienation, powerlessness, and doom. Have you ever felt hopeless? Have you ever been felt as though you were cut off from family, friends, peer groups, co-workers, whatever it may be? Have you ever felt powerless in your life? Maybe you were being unjustly slandered and it was affecting your work relationship or your school relationships. It's affecting your reputation with coworkers or friends or family members, whatever it is. Maybe it cost you a job or a relationship. Have you ever felt the shadow of doom? Diagnosis from a doctor. A life-threatening situation hopelessness and this is especially relevant for us to understand as we pick back up in first peter today as we continue through this series one of the things that peter deals with as he begins his book is that the fact that we are living life as exiles we are people who are in exile we have come to faith in christ we are no longer of this world we are strangers and aliens the world is not our home we are longing for something else. Longing for home. Nonetheless, living here. This thought of hopelessness is one that those to whom Peter is writing were feeling. They were feeling that alienation. They were dispersed. They were feeling the powerlessness. As you go further along in the book, you understand that they were being spoken of as evildoers and slandered. They felt doom as they, were, as they were suffering unjustly simply for being Christians. This is life as exiles in a fallen world. Just because we are Christians does not mean we sort of get to pull the ejection lever and are free from difficulty, free from trials, free from suffering. We live as strangers and aliens in a fallen world. And the question becomes then, what do, we, what do we do with this? How are we to think in the midst of seeming hopelessness? When we experience these trials, when we experience difficulty, when we experience suffering, how in the world are we to think? How in the world are we to live? How are, are we to see our way clear when it seems like everything is pitch black around us? Peter helps us with that. And he starts in a particular place where we might not think he does. He actually starts in worship. He starts in worship and he, and he begins to draw our attention to the worship of God for the joy of our salvation. He begins in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation point. Rightfully so. 
because this is an exclamation of worship. We often think of blessing as something we receive. When somebody blesses us or God blesses us, we get something, we, we receive something. Oh, that is a blessing, thank you. Which is right and correct, but when in this particular instance, when the blessing is directed Godward, it's not about what us doing something for God, it's about an expression of worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This worship is directed to our God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does Peter do this? Why does Peter start here? He starts because of this, the sweep of God's salvation. In this particular text, as we go through this, he is starting from the present experience that you have and will go toward the future. What you experience now and what you have to look forward to. This grand sweep of salvation, this joy that we should have in the midst of this salvation that we have. So what is it that he blesses God for? What is the, what is the action that he is blessing God for? You need to read through this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, we'll circle back to that, but here's the thing that he blesses him for, that he worships him for. That he has caused us to be born again. Stop there for a minute. This is why Peter draws our attention to worship God. Because first, he has caused us to be born again. He has done something. This is your present experience. He has caused you to be born again. He has caused you to experience the new birth. We call it regeneration. This is something the Lord does. You do not contribute to this. You do not participate in this. You do not earn this. It is something God does for you. It is you no more participate in this new birth that Peter talks about here than you participated in your first one. You were pretty passive. God does this for you. Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that unless one is born again or born from above, that is, comes from God, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There is no entry into the realm of salvation. There is no entry into the kingdom of God. There is no being part of the kingdom of God, being part of the people of God, having God as your father, unless you are born again. And what is this new life that we're given? Well, it's just that. It's new life. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Not mostly dead. Yes, that is a thinly veiled reference to Prince's Bride. Not mostly dead. Not on life support. Not struggling around. We were dead. Dead in our sins and trespasses. Romans 1 says that our hearts have been, were darkened. Ezekiel says that our spiritual condition was one that we had hearts of stone. That's the condition that we were in. Dead, darkened, stony. And what has God done? Given you new life. If you have come to believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been born again. You have been given new birth. God does this. What is, what is more, remember that God is identified here as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
and he is the one who gives new birth. That means in the giving of this new birth, we are born, as it were, with God as our Father. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, by virtue of the new birth that we have, that he has given to us, he becomes our Father as well. John chapter 1, verse 12 says this, all who did receive him, that is Christ, who believed in his name, who he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born, listen, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So by virtue of this new birth, this birth that God gives to us, he imparts to us new life and brings us into his family. This is the action that God does. This is what God does for you. This is why Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, exclamation point. Why? He caused you to be born again. He caused you to have new life. He caused you to be brought into his family. And why does he do this? Because we deserve it? Because we've somehow earned it? Circle back up to the beginning of the verse. According to his great mercy, that's why God did it. It is, a, it is a demonstration, an action of his mercy. God has caused you to be born again according to his mercy. And not just a little bit of mercy, his great mercy. Why? Because we were under judgment. Our sins and trespasses that we were dead in deserved judgment. We had no right to new life. That's why we praise God. We recognize that we are poor, destitute, desperate sinners who were dead, and according to his great mercy, he has brought us from death to life. That's the praiseworthy part of this. We had no expectation, no right to be brought into the family of God. God shows us great mercy. Your present experience of new life and being brought into the family of God is according to his mercy. He has caused you to be born again to a living hope. We're going to come back to that in just a second. And I want us to look at the next statement that he makes. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God causes you to be born again according to his great mercy. How does he do it? through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The new life that you experience in new birth is tied directly to the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection, the resurrection life that he has, is now imparted to you to bring you from death to life. The new birth right now, this present experience, is a taste of the fullness of our salvation that will be finally revealed, which we'll get to in a second, when Christ returns. You you have in the new birth right now experienced in part resurrection life. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, you have new life. It's the gospel. It all comes back to the gospel. It always comes back to the gospel. 
Why do we have new life? Why are we a part of the family of God? Because of what Christ did. Christ doesn't come out of the grave. We don't have new life. We don't become a part of the family of God. We're not just saved or we're not just given this according to God's mercy for the sake of it. There's a goal. Go back to the part we jumped over. We're born again to a living hope. That's the goal. That we have something to look forward to. Why is it a living hope? Well, because Jesus is alive. This is tied also to the resurrection. As sure as Christ lives, as sure as he came out of the tomb, we also have a hope that is very much alive. That cannot but be fulfilled. And Peter goes on to describe this living hope um, in, in, in verse 4. This is, he's not talking about two different things, a living hope and then in verse, chapter, and then in verse 4 to an inheritance. He's simply expounding upon what the living hope is. So in verse 4, he says this living hope, that you're, you're born again uh, to this living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Again, pointing to the familial nature of this new birth, but the inheritance is promised to us. It's, it's a, it, we're awaiting its execution, if you will. But there's a certainty to it because it's tied to Christ's own resurrection. Paul talks about in Ephesians about the Spirit of God being the seal of the promised inheritance. The same Spirit that sanctifies us, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, is the same Spirit of God who seals us for that inheritance, that promised inheritance. It's a, the, the fact that we have been born again, the fact that we have been saved, the fact that we have been given the Holy Spirit guarantees to us, the fact that Christ came out of the tomb guarantees to us the living hope that we are born again to, the inheritance that God promises us, will be ours. We're sealed for this. We are guaranteed the reception of that inheritance. And how does, how does Peter describe it? It's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. In other words, it's completely unlike an inheritance that you might experience or you might receive here on earth. You get an inheritance here on earth, you can spend it all. And then you're left with nothing. Somebody could steal it. You're left with nothing. You can gain property or material things and it decays and you don't have it. This inheritance that we're promised is unlike any of that. It's imperishable. It's not going to die. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's not subject to decay. It's not going to fade away. Moreover, this, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's safe, and it's already prepared. It's already there. 
We live here as exiles knowing that we have been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is being kept for us in heaven, which is where God the Father is, which is where the Lord Jesus Christ is. It is as if they are holding it for us, waiting until Christ returns and then we will receive it. So this inheritance, this promise, is kept for us, is guarded for us, is already waiting for us, is sure. But Peter gives us a little bit more assurance, doesn't he? Well, that's great. That's, that's, that's great that the, the, the thing that we're anticipating is kept. But what about me? This inheritance is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, who, that is you, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is the inheritance safe, you're safe. Now this does not mean, as we will talk about shortly, that we are somehow exempt from difficulty in this life. What Peter is talking about what Peter is pointing to that God holds on to you the ones that are a part of his family who have been born again to this living hope God keeps and holds and protects again doesn't mean we don't experience difficulty Peter talks about that but we're secure in that inheritance in John chapter 10 Jesus is telling his disciples, talking to his disciples about um, his sheep. He says, concerning those ones that the Father has given me, the, 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 the ones who would come to believe in his name, no one can possibly, nothing can possibly snatch them out of the Father's hand. Security. The inheritance is kept you're protected by the Father through faith that is the conduit, not just based on the strength of our faith, by the way, but it is through faith that we are connected to all the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus, including the new birth, including sanctification, including this inheritance, including being brought into the family of God. So Peter points us to the joy of our salvation when we think about how do we function or what hope do we have in the midst of hopelessness the first thing he points us to is the joy of our salvation because look at in verse oh i don't know um six in this you rejoice what is the this it's pointing back to everything that he just talked about new birth living hope inheritance being kept that assurance you rejoice in this Yes, we do. That is right and proper and appropriate. We should rejoice in this. This is exciting stuff. This is magnificent. The fact that the God of the universe would give to us a new life 
through his son Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven, and keeps this inheritance nice and secure for us, and holds us, that is spectacular. And all God's people should be saying at this point, amen. That was terrible. <laughs> you know Jesus is alive, right? Amen. <laughs> Thank you. Now, he starts with the joy of our salvation, and I want us to, in uncharacteristic form of me preaching a sermon, jump over verses 6 and 7. And I want us to look at verses 8 and 9. I'll explain why in a minute. Or 10. He starts with the joy of our salvation, and then in verses 8 and 9, he turns the attention to the joy of our Savior. See, this, this magnificence of our salvation is unparalleled by anything. It, it defies even enough adjectives to describe it appropriately. You can't compare it with anything. You can't illustrate it properly. It's that great. And the truth of our salvation and the truth of the doctrines that we hold is clearly important. But the truth and the, and the things that the Bible teaches about the salvation are not simply an abstract form. They aren't simply just a set of beliefs to be adhered to, and that's it. Because the joy of our salvation is only as good as the joy of the Savior that we have. The faith that we profess, the things that we say we believe, the things that we praise God for, cannot simply be reduced down to the lowest common denominator that they are a set of doctrines that we simply say, you know what, I believe that. There's a relationship that we must find joy in. The joy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter says in verse 7, or verse 8, Though you have not seen him, that is Jesus, you love him. Peter had the unique experience to have seen the resurrected Christ. And despite the fact that he has that or had that experience, that doesn't diminish our relationship with him. Just because we have not seen him, as Peter had, as the disciples had, when he was resurrected prior to ascending back to heaven, does not diminish our love for him. Matter of fact, remember when, when, uh, when uh, Jesus had been resurrected and he appeared to the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there? And Thomas said, you know what? Um, that's a cute story, guys, um, but there is no way, no how, I'm believing nothing until I see it for myself. And Jesus appears, and Thomas makes that great confession, my Lord and my God. And what does he say? He says, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. There's no loss to us who have yet to see Jesus face to face. We still love him. We still believe in him. Jesus himself calls us blessed. And Peter draws us back again to that which is coming. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And what? Rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 
You rejoice in him. You love him. You believe in him. And in this you rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible. See, Peter's drawing them back in the midst of this dark despair that they're feeling because of these trials that they're experiencing in the midst of this hopelessness. He's like, remember the joy of your salvation. Remember the joy of your Savior. Remember these two things. These bring you joy. And he says that this, the obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, he goes, he goes to the future again. Your love and belief of Christ is going somewhere. Full redemption at the resurrection. That's when we will truly be home. When we get our resurrection bodies and we inhabit a new earth, a new creation that is no longer marred by sin. We have an experience in ourselves where we no longer have the presence of sin. We no longer deal with unrighteousness. We're no longer plagued by death. Our love for our Savior, our joy uh, for our Savior is an eternal one. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we, and what we will be has, yet, has not yet appeared. But know that when he appears, we shall be like him, we will see him as he is. See, the point that Peter's making as he draws our attention to this is that part of the experience of our salvation is love for the Savior. It's not something natural. Love for and belief in the Savior. It's not something natural. It's, it's, a, it's a consequence of the salvation that we've experienced. This inexpressible joy is a consequence of being brought from death to life. The hope of our salvation, this living hope that's grounded in Christ, the inheritance we have, we will see and we will have when we receive the salvation of our souls, when Jesus returns in the full scope of what he accomplished through his death and resurrection is fully and finally consummated. The joy of our salvation, the joy of our Savior, you say, why in the world did you jump over verses 6 and 7? Thank you for asking because we're talking about seeming hopelessness. That is what Peter points out, is that when we experience trials in this life as we live as a life of exiles, we need to understand them between the joy of our salvation and the joy of our Savior. We can no longer look at trials in the same way that we would have before. They must be understood in that context. They're the guardrails that help us. What hope do we have in the midst of hopelessness when we experience trials? You go back to verse 6. In this you rejoice, that is the salvation that you have been given, this, this redemption, this new life, this live, born again to a living hope. It says, though now for a little while it is necessary, or if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 
It's these trials that cause this hopelessness. It's these trials that cause us to, to pull our eyes, as it were, down from the heavenly realities that were promised and sort of gaze to the ground, gaze to the earth, to not be able to see our way clear. Life in exile must be framed by the joy of our salvation and the joy of our Savior, but we experience trials and they grieve us, they hurt. Peter doesn't diminish the difficulty of trials, does he? He just is simply saying, because he says, you're, you're grieved by them, you're, you're, you're experiencing them, they're hard, they're difficult. But in the midst of them, you need to have these two poles, these two parallels. And what we notice about these trials, he says, though now for a little while. That these trials that we experience in here now as we live in exile, as we're awaiting for the home that has promised us, the inheritance that's promised us, as we're awaiting that time, in light of eternity, these trials that we are grieved by in this present life are for a little while. Again, not diminishing the difficulty that they can bring but they are momentary where we have been fit for eternity and these trials are not purposeless are they notice what he says you have been if necessary you've been grieved by various trials so that here's the purpose that the tested genuous of your faith more precious than gold perishes uh, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, he draws us to the future, but he's saying when you are experiencing trials here in this life, yes, they can hurt, yes, they are difficult, but know that it does something. Like gold and your faith is more precious than gold gold when it's refined it it doesn't destroy the gold but the impurities are burned off and so as we live here and we experience these trials what happens our faith is strengthened we look for and long for as Taylor said in his prayer, we recognize things aren't right here. We experience those things. And when our faith is tested in the midst of trial, when it's refined, when it's strengthened, it brings our focus back to the thing that we have ahead of us. The things that so easily ensnare us here, the things that so easily captivate us here, become a dim reality in the light of the glorious grace that is promised us in our inheritance. All of this, we view all of this in the light of the present experience of the joy of our salvation and the joy of our Savior and what we look forward to. And in the midst of trials, in the midst of what we're going through and the difficulty we can feel hopeless. We can fret too much in the midst of them. 
and Peter wants to direct us away from that. John Newton, well-known preacher, hymn writer, um, had an illustration. And it's a bit dated (laughs) because John Newton's no longer alive. He said this, he says, suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which then obliged him to walk the rest of the way. He said, what would we think if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering the remaining mile, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. And the point that Newton makes and the point that Peter is making is that we can get so myopically focused in the midst of our trials that we focus on the thing that's happening over against what we are going to. The man whose carriage broke down, instead of focusing on the inheritance that he was going to walk a mile to get, is focused on the fact that his carriage broke down. And we can focus on whatever the trial is that has come into our life, whatever the difficulty is that has come into our life, whatever, whatever the, the, the suffering is that has come into our life. And we feel hopeless. And Peter wants to direct our eyes back to the, the reality. Focus on the inheritance. Focus on the Savior. Here's what he wants us to know. That this present experience of salvation that we have and the accompanying guarantee of our inheritance provides hope for us and focus for us in the midst of hopelessness. The present experience of salvation and the accompanying guarantee of the inheritance that we have provides hope for us in the midst of hopelessness. I traveled to Florida one year to a conference. And when I was there, I got sick. And I'm a horrible sick. I mean, I could have a stuffy nose and I would swear that the world is coming to an end. I require couch. I require six gallons of chicken noodle soup. I require constant attention and Netflix. That is the remedy for anything that ails me. But I got sick two days before the conference was over. So I had to go through two days of the conference, and I just wanted to get back home. I wanted my couch. I wanted my blanket. I wanted my soup. I wanted my house. And wouldn't you know it, flight got canceled. I had to stay another extra day in Florida, which is where I did not want to be. And the thing, granting this is a meager illustration of suffering, the thing that kept me going, the thing that kept me steady in the midst of that was the fact that I knew home wasn't going anywhere. Home was there. 
home would be there when I got there. When we're going through trials, dear friends, when we understand the joy of our salvation, when we understand the joy of our Savior, when we understand the present experience of salvation that we have and that promise of that inheritance, that it's there, we're guaranteed it. It allows us to go through them with hope and not hopelessness. So when we experience alienation, remember we have a family and an internal inheritance that does not go away. We've been brought into God's family. That's not going to change. It's not going to go anywhere. When you experience powerlessness, remember that God who gave you new life and raised Jesus from the dead is the one who is going to give you the full inheritance that he promised. Nothing's going to take that away. And when you experience doom, remember that Christ has been raised from the dead and ever lives. And when he returns, you will obtain the inheritance that has been promised to you the full and final salvation that we experience in part now by virtue of the new birth. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we're grateful for the truth and the clarity of your word. We're thankful for the fact that it addresses us in our present need and helps us to understand and helps us to have a proper focus and gives us and restores to us the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you for that, Father. In Christ's name we pray.